Welcome to the Blackcast. It is I, Christian Blatt, on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. And uh, you can always find the Blackcast on Twitter at Blackcast, like the Blackcast on Facebook, and of course, Blackcast.com, B L A D T C A S T.com. Joined now by a great friend of the Blackcast, our friend Mark Hunt. Also known back in the day as Rafe Gutman on the DMZ message boards. Mark slash Rafe, welcome back to the Blackcast. Ah, great to be back. Now, we're going to have you here on the show. People here that you're going to be on, they're going to assume, oh, what are they going to talk about? What are they going to talk about? Oh, of course they're going to talk about Doctor Who. Of course they're going to talk about Planet of the Apes. And of course we're going to talk about Wonder Woman. And look, <laughs> all that's true, but what people might be surprised is that the first thing I want to talk to you about is you're on a very short list of people I know who saw Train Spotting 2. And uh-huh. I personally really enjoyed revisiting with some old friends, and I wanted to talk to you about it for a few minutes. And we're going to talk about it in a way that's kind of light spoilery because there's not really much to give away. I won't talk about any big endings for the movie or anything like that, but we will talk a little bit about some of the things that are said and done in the movie. So, like I said, it's light spoilery. So if you haven't seen Strain- Train Spotting 2 yet, you might want to plug your ears for a few minutes, but we're not going to give away anything too crazy. But uh, Mark, as our guest, I'd like to let you go first and tell us your thoughts about Train Spotting 2. Oh, well, it was one I was, first of all, I remember seeing originally in the theaters, and it's always been a personal favorite of mine. So I was really looking forward to this movie, and it was one of those ones. It didn't need the sequel, but it was just I a- yeah, absolutely, checking back in. Absolutely not. Completely unnecessary. But I had been eager for it ever since the novel sequel that is called Porno. Ever since that came out, I had wanted to see a movie version of it. And it was one of those things where I think the guys weren't that interested for a little while. But it only works better that they got even older, you know? Absolutely. The 20 years. Yeah. I think it pretty much is 20 it, yeah, years since I that mean, movie I, came out. It, it, day, yeah, because it was 1997 that we saw it here in the U.S. Yeah. I don't know exactly when it came out. And I have to agree with you. It was one of my favorite movies. And what gets lost in that movie is that, you know, I also saw it in the theater actually a couple of times. What people walk away from the movie thinking about are, are two things. When he dives into the toilet and the baby crawling on the ceiling. And those are both very disturbing, incredibly well done visuals. But lost in those images at being, you know, if they overshadow the rest of the movie, what's lost, it is a hysterical movie. It is so funny. Yes, I know that they all have terrible drug problems with varying degrees of results. But it's just really ultimately a story about a bunch of friends bunch of loser friends, really, and for the most part, and how they don't really like each other, but they're still friends for the most part. And I don't know, it was it just came at exactly the right time in my life. I mean, I was basically 20 myself when I said, I think I was actually 21 when I saw it. So, you know, it's just sort of, I very much identified with the circumstances they found themselves in, apart from being a drug addict. That was never a problem that I had to deal with. I don't know about you, Mark. Maybe you have a dark past, but... Uh, it was no, never... not... No heroin usage, but again, the same <laughs> way, it's just... I'm Actually, I'm pretty much exact same age as Ewan McGregor, so I was... You're the 20... same age as Obi-Wan Kenobi? Obi-Wan Kenobi. In fact, there's a line in the movie... Well, in Train Spotting 2, he's yelling at Sick Boy, and he's like, he's like, I'm here, I'm 46 years old, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm 46, I <laughs> yeah. forgot. 
Lordy, I'm the same age. But the first movie, yeah, a lot of people don't realize it's funny and it actually has a very upbeat, positive ending. I mean, if you look for well, it, it really the, is the kind whole, of a positive The whole movie. usage of the choose life narrative throughout the course of the original movie, which I think is revisited very nicely in the sequel. But I, I, it's mm. just sort of like that's what he's choosing. You know, he could have chosen a lot of things. And, you know, he's screwing over two guys who he doesn't feel bad about screwing over because they would have done it if they had thought to do it first. Mm -hmm. And he looks out for Spud. And, of course, that brings us up to Trainspotting 2, though, that uh, it didn't really help Spud that much, did it, that he got 4,000 pounds in a, a locker No, no, no. But, again, this is light spoilery, but I love – that was one of the characters I was really impressed with in this movie because – other than really Alien versus Predator, I hadn't seen that actor in much. Oh, you and Bremner? Yeah, I yeah. until you said Alien versus Predator, I didn't even remember. As I'm seeing the movie, I thought I hadn't seen him since the original Train Spotting. It was great to see him, and you know, it's sort of a logical continuation of his character, especially when Renton sees him for the first time. But ultimately, yeah. like you said, it didn't need to be made, but it was it was just great to get to revisit with everybody. You know, you're hanging out with Obi-Wan Kenobi and Sherlock Holmes. Well, that's fun. And my favorite moment in the movie is uh, when they're called upon to improvise a song in that uh, <laughs> yes. that, that separatist or nationalist or whatever you call that, that 1850 movement or whatever it was. And uh, 1851, I think. It would, and it's something I didn't, I didn't know anything about any of that, but uh, it was mm -hmm. such a fascinating little story. Like, if that had been a short story about these guys, I would have probably been like oh that's great that's that's kind of all he needed a little short film where they sang the song and just the the rousing reception to their no more catholics left song was uh it was great it just uh, that's probably the biggest laughs i got out of it uh, and the and the tension leading up to it where you're like oh these guys are screwed yeah, they're, yeah they they're are absolutely. absolutely screwed yeah <laughs> well uh like myself you are also a father you have you have a son do you have just the one son or do you have multiple children i i, I, I have two boys i was em uh, embarrassed that i didn't know how many kids you had i'm sorry yeah Bro brody age 20 yeah. and quinn age uh just turned 17 okay well so uh quinn my apologies you're the one that i i don't think i realized I, but i've heard you say both those names before so i think i just didn't remember but anyway i also have a son much younger you know he's uh, less than two years old but uh like me, I feel like you probably strive to have the same kind of father-son relationship as Begbie and his son, don't you? You want to be able to <laughs> teach your son how to steal flat-screen TVs and be able to fence them at a reasonable price, don't you? Yeah. Well, I think my son well, probably would have preferred that to me dragging him to <laughs> sci-fi and comic book conventions. Yeah, I think he would have. Yeah, he's like, can we just go out and steal a flat-screen or something? This is <laughs> this is painful. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It was interesting. I mean, that was sort of a character that I was going to, I was wondering what they were going to do with. And I think it was kind of interesting to see that things don't really go well for old Franco. And he's not really a particularly sympathetic character, but uh, <laughs> no. there is a kind of a great moment when he and Renton are both in adjoining stalls in the men's room and they're sort of, you know, passing what toilet paper across or whatever. And when they realize who the other person is, I thought that that was actually a pretty great reveal. And that's sort of one of the things that you're most looking forward to in this movie is, you know, look, uh, sick boy was not going to be that happy to see Renton again, but, um, you know, they kind of worked through it, but you knew that 
Begbie was going to want to kill him and not just, you know, maim him within an inch of his life. No, he wanted to kill him. They spend a nice chunk of time leading up to that because yeah. it's it's not until almost halfway through the maybe even past halfway when they actually do meet. And the, I mean, the whole movie, you're following him knowing he's just waiting to get his hands on him so he can kill him. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I like that, uh, you know, they, they found a way to bring Diane back. Kelly McDonald, obviously a very busy actress and, you know, probably has no problems with this part. But I, I don't know how you really fit her into this story beyond that one scene. But it was kind of nice that she, of course, still refers to Simon as sick boy. There was kind of that one moment. And then he's and Renton's like, well, it's, it's Simon now. <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> not sick boy anymore. It was it was great. And, you know, just random like little things like I wouldn't say that I remembered Mickey Forrester, but there he was right back in the middle of the movie. So I was like, well, that's kind of mm-hmm. fun. You know, I mean, I really like Danny Boyle's work in general, and I knew he wanted to make this for a while. And. I think, what are you doing, trying to start fire there? It sounds like you're rubbing two sticks oh, together. <laughs> moving some stuff, actually. Oh, okay. This mic, I, I this thought mic you were either, actually uh, works pretty good. No, the, yeah, the Skype microphones are great. I thought you were either yeah. trying to start fire or you were uh, you had a lottery scratch-off ticket, and I, I was going <laughs> to demand that you split the winnings with the uh, Black Cast Nation. But I, I think that, you know, I know Danny Boyle wanted to make this movie for a while, and some of the actors kind of balked a little bit, but I was glad everybody came around. And ultimately... It was a fun romp with some old friends. Again, completely unnecessary, but not in the way where it ended. And I was like, well, they didn't need to make that. It ended, and I was like, well, I'm glad I got to spend some more time with them, you know? One actor they brought back was Renton's dad. Yes. Which I thought were some of the best scenes. I mean, just heart-wrenching scenes. Because in the first movie, he's kind of, you didn't really get into the character that much. But in this one, I love the characters so much more in this one. I, it was actually one well, of the scenes that kind of jerked at the old heartstrings was uh, his dad. I thought was amazing. Actually. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that was probably some of the most heart that we had. You know, there were some moments with Spud as well. But uh, I really think that this was it. And I think, you know, look, I enjoyed the book porno, but it, it I don't think would have translated very well to the big screen, especially not in 2017. The idea of, you know, becoming rich in the porno industry doesn't actually seem like something that one can do anymore because of just the proliferation of all these internet sites and all this. So I'm just curious. I haven't read it. How different was it? I mean, what did they use? Did they use there, parts of it? Basically that he owns his aunt's bar and they have that upstairs mm-hmm. area. That's basically the only thing that's the same from the book. Uh, I would definitely recommend reading the book, though. Uh, I don't know if you read the original Train Spotting book. They're not easy reads initially because they're written in that thick Scottish slang, and there's actually a glossary in the back so that you can get used to it. So it takes mm-hmm. like a good 20 pages until you can adapt to like what you're reading. Yeah, I mean, Irvine Welsh, the author of Train Spotting Porno and a bunch of other books, uh, he also wrote this book filth that was turned into a, a, a I was going to say great a very well done movie with James McAvoy just with as this depraved police d- inspector oh, yeah. I yeah I'm a big fan of his work and I was glad that we got to see this again and you know if if everybody's still around in another 20 years I'd be ready for a train spotting 3 why not I said the same thing I was like oh I can't wait for Train Spotting 3 when they're all in their 60s. That's going to be so awesome. Yeah, and, you know, we'll see how Begbie gets out of jail this time. <laughs> so so I would recommend for people that liked Train Spotting, you should definitely see Train Spotting 2. If you didn't like Train Spotting, Train Spotting 2 is not going to win you back. They sort of do a good job utilizing a lot of little footage and clips from the original movie and transposing them with the present day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, look, the appreciation for it, I went with my friend Rob from college and he and I both had seen it in theaters in 1997. And, you know, we both really identified with the movie and now we're both in 
our early 40s. And so we're kind of in the same place, essentially, as the characters mm -hmm. in both films. So I think that that's most likely why I identified with it so much. But um, I'm recommending it with an asterisk, you know. I mean, you have to really like train spotting to want to see this, you know. You know, it did well enough that it, it got a decent release because, Mark, I remember there was a point where, you know, I saw it in Los Angeles, of course, because it, it opening weekend. And it did well enough oh. that it expanded. But you didn't think that it was going to make it out to Columbus where you live, which there was so little fanfare about this movie that I agreed with you. I was like, yeah, you might have to wait for Blu-ray. We might not be able mm -hmm. to talk about it on the Blackcast, you know, until like late summer or something. But uh, I was glad you were able to see it. Yeah, and it, it was out uh, for a couple weeks. It was I was impressed. It stayed around. for. It wasn't like a one-time one thing and it was done. It, it stayed around in theaters here locally for a couple weeks. Was so. it uh, decently attended? I mean, I saw it at yeah. the, uh, yeah, the Arclight really in, in Hollywood. But we went on a yeah. weeknight. I mean, we went okay. on like a Tuesday night and it was a pretty good crowd. Yeah, I went on like a Friday like 11 a.m. or noon or something and it was it was mostly full so uh it's one of those things that people are well versed in and they really like and when they want to see it they do see it i think it also had a, a nice soundtrack i mean the original soundtrack was something that a lot of that is not the kind of music that i like i mean some of it was sure but you know some of that sort of you know more electronica european euro trash music whatever it was in the original but i felt like some of those tracks being updated and just some newer music uh, I thought they did a great job telling the story. So I liked how they kind of used Iggy Pop's theme, uh, Lust for Life, how it kind of, kind of, I don't want to spoil it, but how it was kind of teased in the movie. I thought it was kind of cute. Yeah, no, I definitely thought that that was a nice touch that they did. Anyway, so that's our thoughts on, on Trainspotting 2, which I like the fact that it was billed as T2, which, of course, <laughs> there's only one T2, and uh, that's Terminator 2. But, uh, you know, that's, that's all right. They can call it T2 if they want to, I suppose. But uh, anyway, so now that we've talked about something that's, that's not nerd stuff, uh, I feel like it's high time. People have got to be wondering, hey, what does Rafe think about this? Because you're sort of the black cast historian on Doctor Who because you are a fan going way back through you know most of your life. When did you yep. originally start watching the original series? I assume it was on PBS where you lived in Ohio and that's how you found it. Well, actually, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. What? Or it's where I was born and raised. Um, I didn't move out till to Columbus till actually halfway through high school. Oh wow! See, so I'm an Oklahoma boy. Learning so much, but anyway, so I assume you just found it like locally on TV, yeah, or did you I mean, did was, you have I, a relative I, that liked it and showed it to you, you or know, you just found I it? I kind of uh, came home from school one day with a friend of mine, and we sat in front of the TV and we're flipping it on, and it was halfway through an episode. It was Seeds of Doom Part Three. I see. I didn't even have to ask. I'm like, I'm gonna bet that he remembers <laughs> what episode it was. Oh, I remember the exact scene. Wow. And. I I'm like, right, why is this? They're in a quarry and he's being chased and the long scarf. I'm like, what is this? And my friend's like, oh, that's Doctor Who. Let's let's go do something else. And I was like, wait, let me let me finish this. And I watched the rest of part three and they showed it because Doctor Who's br broken up into little 30 minute episodes. They showed one a day, Monday through Friday. So I enjoyed what I got to see, came back the next day by myself so I could sit down and watch it and concentrate. And yeah. I mean, I was hooked right away. Without, without your friend distracting you, you know, you're like, hey, I gotta, I gotta yes, pay attention to this. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and that was in the sixth grade, so this would have been about 1982. Okay, so at that point, that those were not current episodes in the UK, no. but probably you know relatively new for what we were getting in the US. So, well, they were new for me. I think Peter Davison had already taken over, but mm -hmm. back then, I mean, it was years. I mean, it'd be a year or so before PBS would get 
what would be called quote unquote new Doctor Who. Right. So I think Peter Davison had already taken over. And um, in fact, I didn't know this, but Peter Davison, his first convention appearance anywhere after taking on the role of Doctor Who was in a convention in Tulsa, Oklahoma, just a few miles from my house, and I did not get to go to it. Oh, no. Now, I, I feel like you've met a lot of them over the years, though. Have you since met Peter Davison? Uh, Peter Davison I met, and I even uh, mentioned that, and he's like, oh, I remember that Tulsa, Oklahoma convention re- re- really well. You nice know, I guy. feel like Super. for people that are parts of these franchises, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, or honestly, even the comic book movie franchises, your first convention is probably something you'll always remember, because even if you're prepared by other actors who are familiar with mm-hmm. it, or you think you know what it's going to be like, you probably are not completely aware of just how important these things are to people. And a lot of it is probably positive, but then also, you know, they're so invested in these things that you might also mm, hear about, you know, like, oh, "Oh, Peter Davidson. Yeah. Yeah. You replaced everybody's favorite. So uh, anyway, whatever. So you've been watching since the sixth grade. So again, that makes you the historian. Uh, the official black cast historian of, of Doctor Who, and our friend Jersey Joe, who we talked about Doctor Who with once. I think he's a little bit older than us, so that's why he's probably been watching longer. But I I haven't talked to Jersey Joe in years. But if you remember, Plus there's a lot of doctors he didn't like. He, he, was he really hated about doctors. he hated Sylvester McCoy. I thought oh, that was very interesting. I don't get that. I loved I loved Sylvester McCoy. Well, so. and and you know he's he's great in in Will's favorite Doctor Who story, Doctor Who the movie with Paul. <laughs> McGann, because he's the doctor just as long as Paul McGann is. All that ramp up aside, I want to know what you think about the current series, which is uh, series 10, season 10 for the Americans amongst us, which of course is us. I am only caught up through the first three episodes of the season slash series. Uh, Thin Ice was the last one I saw, but I just saw it over the weekend. So uh, let's not speak beyond that. And, you know, right. we don't we don't need to really talk in terms of heavy spoilers, but uh, just give me starting with your general reaction to the way that these first three episodes of the season have been. Um, I'm my feeling is it's probably the best Peter Capaldi season. It's definitely my favorite. I love what they're where they're going with it. I love the companion Bill. Yeah, she's not she's not overly written. She doesn't have this overly complex mythology they're trying to weave into some story arc. She's just a regular person, Peter. Capaldi's doctor is he's much more the intellectual he's not rambling it's it's not the jokey stuff that Stephen Moffat always seemed to try to cram down his throat dialogue wise it's just it's been especially in those first three episodes has just been really solid writing I've really enjoyed I'm gonna and I it, it pains me to know that Peter only is limited time. We only have a few more episodes with him. I know. And, and that's my one thing is that, first of all, he's been great. And as I've said many times, from what I have seen, he is definitely my favorite. He's who I enjoy watching the most as the doctor. And I tweeted this after I watched the season premiere. I thought that it was actually, I use the word perfect. I don't think there was one false note in the entire, I guess it's 45 minutes, I was going to say. But I just thought it was so well done and just sort of of getting to know Bill and just sort of how they 
you know, get to the point that they're going to actually travel together a little bit. And the resistance and sort of her almost indifference to it at first, I thought mm-hmm. that it just all developed so naturally. And I enjoyed seeing Nardal in the Christmas special. And I, I think that so far, at least through these three episodes, he's been very well used. Some light comedy. And, you know, I agree with your assessment that sometimes things are a little too jokey. What I will say is that I enjoyed some very funny moments in episode mm-hmm. three, Thin Ice. Uh, I wrote a couple of them down. One was when he's uh, talking to the, the street kids. He says, hang tight and laters. And then on the way out, he says to Bill, I was being down with the kids there. And then he's talking to the villain of the episode. And he says, I'm against tattoos, too. Oh no, Yeah, I'm, uh, we're bonding. I think that's who he says that with, actually. And then my favorite line, and I tweeted this out, don't be smug. Smug belongs to me. He said that to Bill. And yep. I, I what I tweeted was that... I, I was under the impression that smug belonged to me, but if if uh, the doctor, Peter Capaldi, wants to take it, that's fine. But I think that it's been interesting. My one thing is that these sort of these two self-contained stories, very Doctor Who, very they're almost kind of mystery slash monster of the week. But because there's so few episodes, I've sort of been like, well, I kind of want bigger. I'm sure we'll get it. But as the season has started, I'm just like, I just wish we got some some bigger you know, I we have had kind of had it spoiled, some faces from the past who are going to show up, and I'm just mm. sort of eagerly anticipating uh, what it is that we're going to see. But uh, now, look, I'm very happy. You know, our friend Coltrane on the Blackcast very infamously said that he thinks that Bill is going to be annoying, and he mm-hmm. really didn't like her from the trailer. Now, he did not see any episodes. This conversation happened a little while ago. So he hadn't seen anything, but from the trailers, he's like, I don't think I'm going to like her. I think she's annoying. I had no real opinion one way or the other whether he was right or wrong, but now I can safely say I think he's wrong, and I I have enjoyed getting to know Bill quite a bit. Agreed. I, I, I think she's the perfect sort of not complicated, but she asks the question. Uh, in fact, in the the very first her first episode, I, one of my favorite scenes is she starts b- bombarding the doctor with these questions. The fans have been asking forever, like, okay, if you're a Gallifreyan and your your time machine is a Gallifreyan, why does TARDIS time in relative dimension and space? <laughs> you know that doesn't really work because those are English words and yeah. letters. How does that? Tra- and the doctor just kind of like brushes her off and yeah. she throws a few more questions at her and just kind of has been kind of the voice of the audience more so than I think Clara or Amy ever were. Yeah. And what I did like about Clara was that, you know, she did have a lot of questions and they were the same questions I had because that was actually when I started watching every week, you know, I'd seen a handful before that. So I think that, you know, Bill serves that very well for people who are going to actually sit down and discover the show for the first time. They're doing a great job with that. And uh, I did kind of like the running gag throughout the first episode where it took her a long time to kind of grasp the concept of the whole it's bigger on the inside, you know, and he, uh, the doctor <laughs> turns to Nardal and is like, this is taking a lot longer than usual, isn't it? And because it's usually like they walk in and they say, hey, it's bigger on the inside. But she just was like, she didn't even get to that point. She's like, I got too many questions. What's, what's going on? So I think it's fun. And, you know, there, uh, I think that her character we don't know a lot about. I think that there was some apprehension before the episode premiered that we were going to find out that Bill happens to be a lesbian. But, boy, that wasn't really a lot about her character, you know. It was just she she happened to like a girl that she was uh, making chips for, you know. Uh, and 
I don't know. I don't think that that really, you know, if that had been a guy she liked, the the story would have been absolutely zero percent different. So, you know, if they make choices like that and they feel like that's who she is, I don't know. That doesn't bother me at all. I don't. I don't know. I don't know why it would. So I just know that some people were thinking like, oh, why do they have to do this? I'm like, I don't know. They just did. You know, that's who she is. It's like you've got what, 54 years of the show now? Sometimes you're going to tell some slightly different stories, bring in some different characters. I'm eagerly anticipating where we go, but it's one of those things where it's like a countdown. Each week you have that many less episodes, and uh, you know there's a lot of speculation for things that we may or may not see at the end of the season in terms of the Christmas special and when the new Doctor will be announced and who that might be. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think, it's, I think it's all right. I, I am excited Looking forward to it, but I'm going to, I think it's going to be, might be a little rough on me at the end. You know, when, when Matt Smith left, I just really didn't like his last episode, you know, the, the town called Christmas and yeah. like he just sat around and got even older. You know, one nerdy thing that I think I'll have to talk to you about though, is that the doctor said a few times that he's 2000 years old. Now I thought mm-hmm. he was 4 billion years old after the end of season nine, when he had to relive that same day again and again and again, so that he could finally punch through the, the diamond or the crystal or whatever that was. But he says he's only 2000 years old. So what do you think? Do you think he considers himself 2000 years old or is he really 4 billion years old? I think he, well, I think he considers himself 2000 years old. I think, Technically, the body, his body he was in was constantly was, being destroyed and right was and, and dying. So I don't know. If and that was the same day. And that was and, the same and, day just again and again. So yeah, ultimately, so it's I, one I think day. It was kind of mathematically. It's yeah. just like, eh. Well, that was a sort of ultra nerdy diversion there. But I feel like that's what people come to expect on the black cast, especially when you and I are, it's announced that you and I are going to speak about Dr. Who. They know that that's what's mm-hmm. going to happen. That's all we can do is sort of delve in there. Now, speaking of nerdy things though, you told me, and I don't know anything about this. I figured we would just discuss it on the air. You have a very nerdy trip coming up and I'd like to hear more about that. Oh yeah. Um, for my birthday this year in September, my wife and I are, because I'm a huge, not just Doctor Who, I'm a huge fan of British television, British film. We're taking a, about a two-week trip to the UK, and I'm kind of just hitting all, I'm basing it around TV shows and movies I've liked, and we're visiting about six different places. So, I mean, we're starting out in London. That leg of the journey is kind of my James Bond Yeah, I was going to, that was the first thought I had is because I know what a Bond fan you are. What are some of the James Bond locations or things that you're planning on seeing? Um, well, the London Film Museum right now has a Bond in Motion exhibit that's going on where they have all the vehicles and props and stuff. It's gonna, it's a huge exhibit that's over there. I'm going to get to go see that. Uh, we're taking a river tour, so we're going to go right by the MI6 headquarters oh, nice. that, they, that, they, uh, that they feature in, in the last few movies. So I'm going to see a few of those places. Um, and then I'm going to do a Sherlock Holmes theme day where I'm going to go to 221B Baker Street and go to the pub and go to uh, the museum they have there. And then we hit the road. We're going to Oxford for a couple of days where there was a TV series called Inspector Morse. I'm familiar where, with it, but I've actually never seen it. But I, I they think that here in the U.S. it gets shown as part of like Masterpiece Mystery or Masterpiece. Yep, yeah. Yep. It, it had a sequel series called Inspector Lewis. It has a prequel series going on now called Endeavor. It's actually where Danny Boyle got his start. He actually directed oh, wow. some of the early episodes. See, now that's just something that I don't know. I don't know that I ever would have made the time for it. But the idea that uh, Danny Boyle got his start there. You know, we were talking sort of about Danny Boyle, and obviously we started off talking about Train Spotting too. I 
I wanted to get your thoughts on his first movie, Shallow Grave, which I've talked about on the mm-hmm. podcast a number of times. I've tried to encourage Agent Starling to see it. And of course, it has the distinction that living in a flat together were the Doctor and Obi-Wan Kenobi. So it has, mm-hmm. you know, before either of them had either of those roles, like a good 10 years before uh, Eccleston was the Doctor. I think that that is such a well done movie and it's kind of the definitive dark comedy because what's happening in that movie is not very funny, but there are some very light moments and it's very funny, kind of culminating with some laughter towards the very end of the movie that I I won't get into the specifics of, but uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And that's the movie that was introducing Ewan McGregor. Like, he had never really been in anything before. What are your thoughts on Shallow Grave? Love the movie. It's a great sort of almost a kind of a Hitchcockian type yeah. thriller. And, uh, yeah, it's I, I actually saw that. I saw that right before I saw Train Spotting. So I was a huge fan of that movie. I saw that in the theater. Uh, it was, you know, fairly small release in New York City. And I remember reading that it wasn't the, I didn't go opening weekend, but as a gimmick, they were giving away shovels with the logo for the movie (laughs) on there, which I thought was very funny. Uh, But uh, I don't know. There was just something about it that appealed to me. I was seeing a lot of independent movies in the city whenever I would be in there at that point in my life. I had a girlfriend who lived in New York, and I was just trying to, like, see these movies that weren't going to make it out into the suburbs where I lived. And that just seemed like kind of a cool one. And I don't know, she was much cooler than I ever was or ever will be. So she kind of had a good, a good read on stuff like that. So uh, that, that was one that I saw. And I don't know that I immediately made the connection that that was the guy who did train spotting. I think by the time I saw it, I did, but you know, there was a lot of buzz for train spotting. But yeah, that's that's a movie that I'll recommend to people who didn't even like train spotting. It's just it's mm-hmm. very dark though. I mean, you have to you have to ready yourself. And oh, and I think Christopher Eccleston is amazing. He is movie. so good in that. And uh, you know, Ewan McGregor as his first role, I, I, I think that it's fantastic. Be warned. There is some male nudity in that movie that uh, still haunts <laughs> yes. me to this day, actually. So uh, obviously I can remember it. Sorry we went down that side trip, but the reason why I brought that up was are you going to Scotland at all? Are you going to Edinburgh to see no, any locations? Not going to, you're not no, going not to, you're not going to um, Leith to take a train spotting trip? No, not. it will be probably in the next one. This one we're going to be further south because after oh, sure. Oxford we're hit, we are hitting Cardiff. So is the Doctor Who experience still going to be open at that point? Because my sister-in-law went back in February and there was no announced date, but the expectation was that it was going to be closing before too long. It closes two months before I get there. Oh, man. That's so so rough. uh, I mean, there's a bunch of tours where I can go to filming locations and I'm still trying to see if I can get into BBC Cardiff. Okay. The studios, I'm hoping that they have some kind of tour. But yeah, it closes two months before I get there. The oh, thing that's man. been there for years and years, and it two bloody months before I yeah. get there, it closes. Well, I don't know. Hopefully, maybe they'll do something with you know the some of the exhibits and and have them tour or something in some way. You know, maybe around an upcoming season of the show. So uh, maybe they'll still be they'll still be hope for you. I, I feel bad because I was thinking about like, oh, he's going to take that trip. I'm like, wait, when's he going? Because uh, <laughs> Well, maybe it'll just be so wildly successful that it'll stay open, you know, a little bit longer, oh, and then I'm it'll hoping, close like I'm a hoping. week a week before you go instead of two months before you go. <laughs> well, that sounds like fun, and we'll have to get an update. So that's not you're not going until the end of the year, though. That's uh, uh, 
Uh, well, September. September. September okay, so that's a little later. Yeah, uh, mid-September. Um, but you know, for the UK, that's the middle of winter, basically September. Um, but oh yeah, I know that this is sort of you know we talk about Doctor Who, and then it gets a little extra nerdy because I do want to get your thoughts about class the spin-off to Doctor Who which you know I don't know how, I don't know that it was very well received when it originally aired in the UK um, I was kind of interested in seeing how they utilized the concept I think is an idea so I only watched the first episode and I I haven't had the desire to watch anymore let's just say I was able to figure out a way to watch after it, you know, within a few days after it aired in the UK, I was able to watch it. So I saw it months before anyone else did, and I wanted to talk about it. But it really stuck with me because I remember what I thought the problems were with it. So uh, I'll go first, just because I let you go first last time. And um, I think that, uh, you know, my joke tweet about it was that it really just felt like Degrassi's School for Gifted Youngsters. So it was like really hyped up melodrama around around like fantastic characters, you know? So it was almost like if Teen Nick had a show about the X-Men where they barely used their powers. And there were a lot of characters, which I don't think that helped. But my biggest complaint, and granted he's only in the first episode, was just the very nonchalant way that they brought the Doctor in. He just walks from behind a curtain. He doesn't have like a grand entrance in the TARDIS during, you know, some excitement. He's like, I'm going to come in here for some exposition. And I'm like, I don't know if there was a reason why that was dictated that that was what they had to do. But... That's what I was looking forward to throughout the course of the whole episode. And, you know, sitting through, you know, this one's mom has this disease and this other one's mom doesn't want her to talk to boys. And I'm like, okay, I don't care about any of this. I don't care about any of this. Oh, my God, here's Capaldi. And, oh, well, that was kind of a letdown. Anyway, those are my feelings. And, again, I haven't seen subsequent episodes, so I'm possibly judging it unfairly. But uh, how many episodes of Class have you seen, Mark? The first two. Okay, so you've you've seen twice as many as I have, so you're much <laughs> more qualified than I am. Yeah, it's I and I was a huge fan. I loved the Sarah Jane Adventures, and that was you know skewed a little younger, but I thought it was great characters, a lot of fun. And when the tenth and the tenth Doctor made an appearance, and the eleventh Doctor both made appearances on there, and when they were on there, they were like beginning to end, integral to the story, and it felt like a true crossover. With class, it was again, he yeah, he comes in at the end for some exposition. Yeah, it's the a gimmick. Time, like him being in that episode is a gimmick. Very it actually gimmicky. doesn't really help the story. It's no. just and like tune in because he's he's in this yeah, episode. Yeah. As I'm going through the the episode, I'm thinking, God, this just seems like like their version of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it, so much so that they even make reference to it at the end of the th this, They're like, yeah, oh, this, we're just like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I, like, oh, God. Yeah, like, why did you have to actually say that? I know I had that thought, too. Uh, yeah. And second episode's not much better. I, I'm really not. I, I, I prepaid for it and bought the whole season on Amazon oh, because man. my cable company doesn't carry it. So I feel obligated to watch it. But I mean, you've paid I, for it. So, you know, I, I don't I even know if you can get a it, refund. So you might as well watch it all the way through. Yeah, my ratings. That's what I understood. Was it the, yeah, and I think that there was sort of like a soft announcement that it wasn't coming back, but mm -hmm. then that was kind of quashed because they wanted to at least give it a chance in the U.S. And yeah. you know, this is one of those things where I, it's like I, I sort of get it from the business standpoint. You know, you kind of figure like, oh, this was something that was airing in the fall in the U.K. Why are we not seeing it until the spring? But I guess BBC America decided, look, the best chance it's going to have to succeed is if we put it on after Doctor Who. So we're going to put it in like a two-hour block, get people to kind of keep the channel on and keep watching. If that is able to help, 
the viewership, then I, I respect the decision. But that is kind of very disappointing because, you know, you're talking about just sort of a long history of having to wait like a year or more for episodes yeah. from the UK to, to translate, which is, of course, not what we have anymore because of the proliferation of the Internet and the ability to really, you know, see high quality versions of these shows through illicit means, which, of course, I'm not saying that I would ever have done. You know, I, I, I didn't mean to imply that earlier. It's not something that I respect. I think that, uh, you know, we have to uh, support the creative people behind these things in, in all instances. In any case, I don't know. I, I don't know if that helps or hurt the buzz. I guess we'll see what ultimately happens at, at the end of the season, you know. if Yeah, if well, back. and I kind of heard ahead of time that it ends on a cliffhanger, so everyone's kind of like, oh, great. It's, you know, it's a cliffhanger that probably won't get resolved. And I just, I find it just so overly angsty. They're just, every episode, the two I've seen, so far they just they try so hard to make these again angst ridden teens and it's i don't know yeah well that's why it's, that's why i called it you know degrassi school for gifted youngsters because of the old pbs degrassi mm -hmm. junior high which of course was rebooted in the 2000s and you know canadians know they're they're angsty teens i'll tell you that much i guess they do it better than the brits but uh, i i don't know it'll be interesting to see i guess but uh i i don't know if they could have figured out a way to maybe introduce this series in a way where one of these characters was maybe his companion for a season and then build the show around that. I think it was just sort of an afterthought. They decided to try and do this spinoff. They didn't build it in a way yeah. where your spinoffs, your, your great spinoffs throughout history, you know, like your facts of life being a spinoff of different strokes and things like that. Well, yeah, and plus, like, again, Sarah Jane Adventures was a fun show. It was a lot of, it was just a fun show and it made it four seasons and it would have probably, it would have gone on further had Elizabeth Sladen not passed away, actually five seasons. And it was going to go right into a sixth season, but you know, she passed away. Yeah. I'd read but, that. And I'd also read that, uh, her and uh, Tom Baker were going to do, uh, audio dramas, I think. And, and yep. then unfortunately she passed away. So that's, yeah, that, that is too bad. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you can't sort of continue a show when the, the main character dies. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I do remember in the late 80s, I forget the name of the series, unfortunately, but Red Fox was like the, the sort of the grandfather in this big family. And then he died. And then they tried to keep doing the show. They replaced him with Jack Hay from 227. Oh, so, yeah. I remember yeah, that show. And yep. uh, I, I don't I don't know how that works. You know, you get into different situations, though, like uh, like Valerie's family, where Valerie Harper just wanted too much money and she, <laughs> she threatened to walk. And they're like. Oh no, we're just going to go ahead and plug Sandy Duncan in and uh, you mm -hmm. know then the show was on for like 6 years after that or something. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's reasons how those things work uh, across the board. I know that you're also a, a tremendous uh, Columbus Blue Jackets fan and believe you're a season ticket oh, holder. Yeah. And yep. their uh, season ended uh, sooner than you wanted it to, but uh, how how are you sort of feeling about the team at the end of the season sort of looking towards the future? Oh, I mean, well Last year, last season, we spent most of the season 30th out of 30 teams. This year, our coach had us. We were number one for quite a while and finished number three. So I'm, I'm loving it. We, we won one playoff game at home, which I got to be at. That was amazing. That is so great. So I, I, I've had nothing but brilliant. I mean, it's been the best season ever. I, and I've been a season ticket holder for quite a while now, and it's absolutely 
the best season ever. And, and that I seems like one of those wait. things you do with your son, right? You and your son go to a lot of the games together? Yeah, I have, I have two tickets, so I rotate. I'll take either one of my sons. Sometimes my wife goes with me. So I just, you know, we just kind of rotate in, and I, who, the one constant is I'm always going, though. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they got to fight <laughs> over the ticket, the rest of them. But no, it's great to have it be sort of a family thing. And, uh, uh, yeah, I, I know that that's sort of one of the things that I see a lot, mostly on your Facebook. And by the way, I forgot to mention, people should follow you on Twitter at Mark Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E, Hunt. I uh, was uh, very negligent at the top of the show with the promotion for my guests, so I apologize for being so rude, Mark. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> You're like, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. But <laughs> while we're promoting things, we should promote uh, Podcast of the Apes. Which, uh, tell us where it can be found. Pretty much anywhere. I mean, you, it's on iTunes. It's on, if you have Stitcher Radio, uh, just Google Podcast of the Apes. We come right up and super easy to subscribe to. And uh, you guys have been doing it for a few years. And I <laughs> remember there was an episode that had a very special guest. Mr. Dennis Miller uh, took the time to talk a little apes with you, which was uh, yes, he did. very fun. At that point, he actually had never been on the Blackcast, So I was like, well, now I got to ask. <laughs> uh, but uh, I know and it's not like you asked him to be on it. He offered to be on it. You just wanted to talk about mm -hmm. how you did it. And I, that's one of those great things about him. So you've talked about all the movies. You've talked about the series. There was also an animated series. You've talked about yep. that, too. So... Now you must just be clamoring, chomping at the bit for the next movie, which remind me of the title and tell me when it's out, because I don't know. I have so many movies that are kind of I'm staring down the long hallway of summer releases. A lot of the other movies, I don't, I'm not really sure when they're going to be out. So tell me when the new Apes movie will be out and okay. what it's actually the, called. The week after Spider-Man, which we'll see how that works out. The week after Spider-Man, uh, July 14th, I believe. Spider-Man's the 7th of July. War for the Planet of the Apes is the 14th, the very next uh, weekend. All right. So that'll be – so War for the Planet of the Apes. And, uh, yep. I, I thought that the last one was was well done. I think I liked the the one with James Franco a little bit more. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just – something about the story in that one. But I found the second one very well done. It was very engaging. I thought there were some great characters. So I am certainly going to see the new one. What are you hearing about it? What do you know? Without you know, I don't want you to give away too much. But well, what are you I don't excited really know about? Too much. So there's not much to me to give. It's basically where it picks up a few. I think a few years after the last one, the humans. Because if you remember the last one, right before the humans kind of got taken out by the apes, they sent a. They made a big deal of saying they sent a signal out to the to the armed forces and that the help was on the way. So in this movie, they've been hunted. The, the military or what's left of the military is being is hunting the apes, being led by a very looks like a very crazy looking Woody Harrelson. Do love Woody yeah. Harrelson, though. So that, you know, that's got me right, yes. right off the top. I'm like, all right, I got to check out what Woody's doing with all these apes. Yeah. And it looks like it's going to tie in rather nicely to the second, the original movie, the second movie, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. If you remember, remember those freaky mutants that were underground? The ones with the that worship the bomb, right? So this this yeah. will kind of tie into that. So Poss that's that's my feeling. If you yeah. in the trailer, they have an American flag hanging behind them, and they have the Alpha and the Omega symbol behind them that's on the bomb, and the soldiers are chanting, "We are the beginning, we are the ending." So it's like, oh, okay, are they kind of hinting that this is going to be the origin of those kind of that separatist group of militants? So it's they're giving little hints here and there, but it looks like it's just going to be this massive war. I mean, it looks the from what I'm seeing in the trailers, it looks like it's like they're just they've they've upped the budget. It looks like it's just going to be a massive, just a massive scope. I don't know. I think that told with a big budget is is the way that you know maybe we're not 
accustomed to seeing the Planet of the Apes story, so that could be very exciting. So <laughs> we'll have to see that. You know, I'm I'm reminded, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, after it's out, and we'll get your thoughts about it. Uh, I was reminded that when we spoke with you about Star Wars. Or I guess it's called Rogue One, a Star Wars story, excuse me. Mm-hmm. What I didn't talk to you about was because we've talked many times about chronology and the way that you feel like it's very important to watch these movies in the order that they happen in the timeline. <laughs> now, do you still feel that way? And again, this would be for someone who's seeing them all for the first time. This is not my plan for my son, Felix. Do you feel like it's important that they see Rogue One right before they see A New Hope, the way that it dovetails from one story into the other? Or are you making an exception for this movie? Oh, you mean you mean for a brand new viewer? Yeah, a brand new viewer. Yeah. Oh, it's hard. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, going just on as, as a person going back and rewatching. Actually, I just rewatched them and I slotted Rogue One in there, in between, and it just fits so well. I mean, I was like, oh, this is this is perfect. So you I think mean, that that works? That works. That works for rewatching, not so much for mm-hmm. initial watching. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's. I mean, again, it's kind of like Doctor Who. I guess it really just depends on when you jump on board. Mm, that's true. I mean, it's, I guess it's just really, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I, I will say this. If you're going to start with a new hope, go a new hope, empire, return of the Jedi. Some people have these crazy chronologies where it's like, no, you got to watch four. Then you got to watch two. Then you got to watch six. Yeah. And then you, I, I've like, heard, what? I've heard people say that and that's, that's yeah. That's I'm like, insane, all right, yeah. either go one through six or, you know, maybe four through six. Yeah. No, go my goal, my goal two, with or, my son Felix is to watch four and then five. And the hope is that he won't have seen anything that will even give him a hint at the lineage of the Skywalker family. See, look at that. Look at the way I said it. I didn't even give mm-hmm. anything away. That was a spoiler-free way to kind of tease Empire Strikes Back, you know, a movie that's from, you know, what, 37 years ago. But anyway, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I, I just feel like that's the ultimate goal because I, I didn't watch it, but I know that there's a video, a YouTube video of a father who like filmed himself and his son just watching it. And there's just, he isolated the moment when his son realizes and Darth Vader says it and he just like, no, he's, he's like Luke. He's like, it can't be true. You know? So I, I don't want to do anything that would sort of tamper with that. And I don't really know how watching Rogue One also, especially if you're watching with a kid, it's a little bit of a downer, you know? I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, and that's always been the thing that I felt is that if you want to have the chance to get them, you you really want to start with episode four, New Hope, a.k.a. Star Wars, the first movie from 1977. Like that's mm-hmm. your best foot forward. That's the best chance to succeed and have them like these. And uh, I don't know. I was just was thinking about that like months ago. I had I had meant to ask you when we spoke. And while you and I have traded messages since then, we haven't actually had you on the Blackcast in quite some time, which was something that we clearly needed to rectify. Yeah, but, I, you know, episode four, it's that's what I started with. It's in my it's still my favorite. I love that movie. No, I, I think that, uh, I, I, you know, I still haven't had my second viewing of it. I, I wasn't able to go see it in the theater a second time. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it again because I still feel like I'll be able to sit back and really just kind of watch it as a movie instead of just being on the edge of my seat, you know, because it's you just get too excited when it's a new Star Wars movie. But uh, anyway... All right, Mark, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about was how I know that you saw Wonder Woman and Agent Starling and I did a whole episode about it uh, just Mm -hmm. last week. And I wanted to get your thoughts about uh, the movie, what you thought, and 
if you agreed or disagreed with Will and I and our summation of the film. I kind of come from the uh, Agent Starling camp. I've been a big fan of the DC movies. I liked Man of Steel. I liked Batman uh, v Superman. And uh, I... I even liked Suicide Squad. Sounds like I even liked it a little better than uh, Agent Starling did. Yeah, I think he his was at first blush. He gave it, I think, a B plus is what he said, and then he saw that it again. But he did see the extended cut the second time, and mm-hmm. look, there are movies that an extended cut actually makes it better. I will argue that the extended cut of Star Trek: The Motion Picture actually helps that movie make so much more sense. But I couldn't believe I sat down to watch it because of how much I disliked the movie. I'm like, well, 12 more minutes, that's not going to help. But they just tried to make it move along so fast. I don't know that that's Suicide Squad. I don't know that that's going to make Suicide Squad better. But I think in Agent Starling's case, he didn't like it as much after he saw the the longer version of it. I mean, it's, it's definitely my least favorite of the DC movies. I didn't li- I, I like the characters, um, but I wasn't big on the the overall mission, I thought, was not very suicide squatty going into wonder woman i was looking way looking forward to it and i went with my uh both my sons and my oldest son brody he is a huge dc fan i mean he is anti-marvel hardcore dc and i mean we we loved it i and i loved every scene of it um, it's interesting so because you feel like the majority of your dc movie fans are not really anti-marvel so it's interesting and i'm sorry was that brody or quinn that was anti-marvel oh. Brody, definitely Brody. He hated he hated Civil War, and whereas I loved it, but he was he 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 falls in that camp where it's like, all right, Marvel, step aside. It's it's DC's time to shine. So he likes the darker tone of the other movies that you're sort of talking about, but he still enjoyed Wonder Woman. Yeah, not not even the darker tones. He doesn't even mind the lighter tones. Um, he just likes DC. Across so the board. Does he like DC so much that he loved the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern? Uh, or, or is that no. getting too crazy? That's too crazy. Yeah. yeah. He he loves he's a diehard DC comic book fan. Sure. And he felt that one strayed a little bit too far from the comics. I think that that's kind of the consensus on that one. Uh, Agent Starling actually owns the Blu-ray of that movie. That's how I was able to see it. But I think even he doesn't <laughs> love it. He loves the character and he was glad that there was a movie that had a minute. But we've really been set back in the Green Lantern movie business. You know, he should be in Justice League, but I think that they're so afraid of the character right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I know they're working on, I think, Green Lantern Corps is what they're calling it. I know that's supposedly coming down the pike at some point, but yeah. I don't know. I think, I think DC's kind of reshuffling some of their movie schedules, so I'm not sure what actually what's coming out. But as for what's out now, give us some of your overall thoughts on Wonder Woman. Oh, I thought it was really good. I thought um, for an origin, kind of an origin story, it really let Wonder Woman be the hero of the movie. At no point did I feel that she wasn't the lead that she needed anyone else at no point did she need anyone else to save or which is one of those things like okay if you got a female superhero really are you gonna let her be the superhero are you gonna constantly remind us are you gonna make sexuality a a thing um and they handle it perfectly i mean it was one of those parts it could have easily have been a man and you could have you could have swapped a man and steve trevor could have been a woman but it was it was just seamlessly how they just made her a hero first that was the focus of the movie and it i didn't think it uh, betrayed that at all yeah not that steve trevor didn't help her but at no point did he do something where 
if he hadn't done it, she couldn't have done it herself. I mean, I, I guess technically he feels like he saves her life at one point. But, you know, she's Wonder Woman and she has those bracelet wristband things. So you got to figure she could probably be all right on her own. But I, I thought the dynamic between the two of them, as I said in the previous episode, was my favorite part. And mm-hmm. I think that their story is why the movie works so well. But, of course, if she isn't this amazing character and Gal Gadot, as Agent Starling tells me I have to pronounce it, if <laughs> she weren't so perfect for the part... The movie wouldn't work, but then you have the cast of characters around her, which I think help. And it's really Chris Pine's the only other person that's really consistently in the movie. I mean, you have the the bad, the evil doctor, Doctor Poison, and you have the German and the British guy with the mustache, which of course is my most disappointing part in the movie. But oh, I'll t- I'll talk about that here in a second. Sure. Too, but anyway, go ahead. But as we discussed earlier in this very episode of the Black Cast, Mark. We hadn't seen Ewan Bremner in ages, who played Spud in the original Train Spotting, oh, and we yeah. were so happy. I didn't happy. even know he was in it. Well, yeah, we were so happy to see him in Train Spotting too, that I had no idea I was going to also see him just a scant few months later in Wonder Woman, and that photograph is featured in Batman vs Superman. And yeah, that was my I thing. Did not I to notice him, but to be fair. I didn't recognize Chris Pine either, and I remember telling Will that. He's like, what do you mean? Of course that was Chris Pine. I'm like, I don't know. I just wasn't looking for him. You know, I was just like, well, there's Wonder Woman with some guys. I definitely recognize Chris Pine, but I was like, I, I need to go back and freeze frame my Blu-ray because I was like, was that really you and Bremner? And I just didn't know. Yeah, I, I, apparently. So, of course, I, I was glad to see him. My wife kind of had the point that those characters weren't really necessary, but it was good that she had some support. She had a little, you know, ragtag band of soldiers going into war with her well they were it's kind of like steve trevor in a way was kind of like a good bond girl he helps out whenever possible whenever needed but james bond doesn't really need the bond girl right they kind of help out every now and then and every now and then in a good bond movie he has usually has maybe one or two that are people that are kind of helping him out to get to the end of the mission doesn't really need them but you know they add color and flavor and that's kind of that's, that's how I kind of saw Steve Trevor and his little ragtag Howling Commando knockoffs. <laughs> they were definitely Howling Commando knockoffs. That's true. But I was very glad to see you and Bremner there. And I thought that the other casting was well done, too. All right. Well, let's talk about what was my biggest problem, which did not make me not enjoy the movie. That's a double negative. I still enjoyed the movie, despite the fact that it turned out that Ares was a British guy with a mustache. But odds are he was going to be a British guy with a mustache or a German guy with a mustache. So I guess I just had to know that Ares had a stash. But I I wasn't that excited that he still looked like the British guy. You know, I wanted him to be wearing the armor while she fought him. And he did a little bit, but you could still see that actor. And I'm like, I don't feel threatened by him, except for perhaps that he might try and steal a parking spot from me. Well, my main problem with the casting of him right now, I don't know, uh, you're probably not watching it. But right now, the third season of Fargo is on FX. I am watching it, actually. And and he's the main bad guy in it. Varga with the really bad teeth. Yeah. Oh, and every time they close up on those. So when I see the big close up on the big screen, all I all I see in my mind is his disgusting teeth on Fargo. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, I, so I get more repulsed and creep when I saw him in Wonder Woman. Then, you know, th- viewed him as a threat. I was just like, oh, please. I, I, enough with the teeth. He's so creepy and slimy. 
that's all I see is this Fargo character whenever I saw the movie. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good point. And it's funny be- that you mentioned that because I didn't actually make that connection when I was watching the movie. I've since realized that that was him. But, uh, I, you know, I, by the time I saw it the second time, I guess I did know. Because I've seen it twice now. I saw it with my wife. And I'll talk about this with Will and Jeff sometime in the near future. Uh, and f- for the most part, I mean, she just really liked it. She was really moved and she teared up a little bit at that moment when she first goes into battle and what she realized after we talked about it after the fact it is the moment when the theme song started so clearly agent starling was <laughs> right that that's when it needed to start because that was um, you know just when you get to see a really good strong female lead in any kind of movie i can see having that sort of reaction to it but getting to see a strong female superhero we haven't had that. You know, Will and I talked a little bit about it last week. For everything that Black Widow is, she's not a superhero, and she's also a recovering bad guy, you know? So mm-hmm. she's not somebody that you really admire. And look, she can do some cool stuff, but she's not, you know, she's not Wonder Woman, you know? And I think really from the Marvel Universe, as I said last week, the women in the X-Men are the only strong characters we've seen, and I don't know that they've been done justice, but fortunately, Wonder Woman was done justice, so when we start to get our, really, I was going to say second tier, our third tier of Marvel characters like Ms. Marvel, who will be called Captain Marvel, I think that they will be better for it. You know, they'll be able Mm -hmm. to be comfortable that, yes, this is going to be a very strong female character, and basically how can we make it like wonder woman without making it look like we're making Mm -hmm. it like wonder woman what i loved about that scene you're talking about the when they're in no man's land right before that big battle yeah i think what really makes that work is the setup for that where they're in the trenches she's telling steve she says oh we just should go out there and just charge him and go into battle and then they stop the movie for a second and he turns around and he goes into this long speech about you know this is our world you can't do this you have to we have to play this smart we have to make a plan. We're going to do this the right way. And she kind of just looks at him and he lectures and lectures and he stops. He says, okay, let's do this. He turns around. She's gone and does it anyway. Just like a man. <laughs> but yeah, no, I thought that uh, it was really well done. And I'm that much more excited about Justice League now because yeah, that we're going to have Wonder Woman back on our screens later this year, which is going to be exciting. And look, I think that Justice League was going to be a cool collection of characters no matter what. But it's like, oh, yeah, we're getting more Wonder Woman. And seeing her in Batman for Superman you got more excited for this movie, which, you know, I think if we were seeing her for the first time in this movie, we wouldn't have known what we were going to get. It was great. And that was something I know I said Mm -hmm. last week. What were some individual thoughts you had about the movie? Are there moments that really stood out for you? Uh, Anything that didn't work for you? Um, No, nothing that really didn't work. I was surprised how, I mean, other than the bookend scenes at the beginning and the end, it really, there weren't a lot of Easter eggs and maybe I was missing stuff. It wasn't a lot of connective tissue. I mean, if you could have, you could have really chopped those bookends off and it would have been just a standalone origin movie. Yeah. And I think that they they needed to do that just because we're getting her from the modern day. So, you know, and the email cameo or it's not really the email, I guess it's a handwritten note cameo from bruce wayne is appreciated i suppose i wonder if they went to affleck and had him write it out yeah probably just some uh whoever was running the craft table services yeah most likely yeah but uh the one thing that was surprising because you were talking about not really putting uh putting together that was david thewlis in the movie 
What surprised me, I didn't realize that was Lucy Davis at first. Yeah, I think she I might be. So, it was the eye, something about the eyes. I was like, God, where have I seen Yeah, I think before? I'm the only one I know who recognized her. And you're right, it was the eyes. And I started to think it was her. I did have to read in the credits to be 100% sure. But I was like, oh, yeah, that was Lucy Davis. And as we talked about last week, she was Dawn in the British office. And the interesting thing mm-hmm. was the last time I saw Lucy Davis was on Studio 60 at the Sunset Strip. And she had lost a lot of weight to the extent that I just felt like, oh, she's like trying really hard to be a Hollywood actress. Somebody gave her the bad advice to lose weight. She should have just looked like her. So seeing her in this movie, you see her and yes, she looks a lot different and you feel like, you know what? I feel like she's a lot happier right now than she was. First of all, one, being on an Aaron Sorkin show that was awful, (laughs) treating Saturday Night Live like it was as important as life in the West Wing. And now she just gets to be Steve Trevor's secretary. And she was a lot of fun. And it was great to see her. You know, I I love the cast of the British office. So I'm always happy to see them when they turn up in this or that. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, it was well put together, top to bottom. Uh, Heather had the interesting observation that she was wondering, like, why did Chris Pine not have a British accent? I'm like, well, he's he's an American officer for British intelligence. And I was just like, oh, yeah, but I guess it would have made sense if it was a British pilot, you know, because they're spending the whole time in England. And then I thought about what if they had cast a British actor in that role, but made him do an American accent anyway? I thought that would have been, you know, just sort of an interesting, weird thing. But since all of our superheroes tend to be British, not Affleck, but, (laughs) you know, Christian Bale. So our second most recent Batman. So, you know, I I think Jason, Jason Momoa, all American. Finally. Hawaiian-born guy. That's Aquaman, right? Yep. And The Flash, is he, he's American, right, that actor? I don't know. He was in, I just saw him in... I saw in, him in uh, uh, The Perks that, of Being a Wallflower. Well, he was also in The Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and I he was British in that, so oh. I honestly don't know. I'd have uh, to look him up. He's a, he's a fake American. Yep. So Sean Hannity would not tell him he's a great American. You're a fake <laughs> American. But anyway, look, the movie was great, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about it in future black cast because we still haven't heard from captain EO what he thought. And I wonder not just how many times he's seen it, but how much popcorn he's eaten while he's watching it. Now we had a fun little exchange on Facebook, you and I Mark, because in that episode (laughs) I talked about how I have never seen a movie in the theater more than three times. And I revealed that I had seen Star Trek V in the theater three times. And I think you got very upset at the notion that I would actually sit through Star Trek V in the no, theater three No, times. that wasn't it. That wasn't it. Star Trek V, if you want to sit through it three times, that's great. That's fine. It was the statement you said, well, I must have sat through it because there was nothing good that <laughs> out that summer. That was what I was like, wait a minute. The summer of 89? That was the summer of 89. And as I mentioned on Facebook, I did point out that I also saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade three times. Oh, I saw that. I must have saw that six times. There was Bat- Tim Burton's Batman, uh, Lethal Weapon 2. Uh, James Bond's License to Kill, Ghostbusters 2, The Abyss, Uncle Buck. Right. Well, you, um, you have to take Ghostbusters 2 out of that statement, I think. that well, You've gotten too carried was, away with movies. That might not be better than Star Trek V. Well, at the time when it was coming out, nobody had seen it yet. It's true. That was a big, you know, I'm not saying it did well at the box office, but I mean, that was the big lead up. Everyone was like, oh, we, we got a Ghostbusters sequel. Everybody went and saw it. 
Um, yeah, I but, believe. I mean, most you know, those, it wasn't as good as the original. Most of those movies but. that you said, I did see in the theater. But I, as I've talked about before, I grew up in a town that did not have a movie theater. If I wanted to go to the movie theater, it was a twenty-minute oh. drive away. If I wanted to go to the the good multiplex, it was a half hour away. So, so they so they didn't get like that summer. It was also like Weekend at Bernie's, UHF, and Ster- Sterling's so favorite um, UH- Friday the Thirteenth. Jason takes Manhattan. Yeah, for Jason takes Manhattan. I did see in the theater. There was a okay. Closer, that would have been that summer. Would've there was a summer. closer theater to where we lived that wasn't it wasn't as nice. But even that was still about 15, 20 minutes away. You know, so I was 13 in the summer of 1989. So I was not driving myself anywhere. So I needed a ride. And my <laughs> brother may or may not have wanted to take me, you know, drop me off at the movie theater or actually go to the movie with me. So, so he probably should, wasn't taking you to see Lethal Weapon 2, I'm guessing. No, probably not. But, you know, I ended up one of the times I saw Star Trek V was in the drive in, by the way. And it was it mm-hmm. was part of a I think, you know what? It was actually part of a double bill with uh, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. So I actually saw both of them in the drive in and notched my third viewing of each, I think, in the same evening. And. I remember I was so excited because at the drive-in, which is still open, by the way, the Warwick drive-in in upstate New York, there are not that many drive-ins left in the United States, but the one that I grew up being able to go to is actually still open. And that's technically the closest movie theater to where I grew up, except for a couple problems. One, it's not open in the winter. And two, well, you can't see the movie during the day now, can you? So <laughs> I would get you dropped off at the mall or the shopping center that had the other movie theater. And you just kind of go with some of these movies. I don't know. I don't think I realized that Star Trek V was so bad. Because well, honestly, I liked, I I liked mean, Star Trek IV so much that I was just excited to hang out with the gang again. And I didn't realize that the, the whole Cybok and going to meet God and the fact that Shatner directed it, all those things didn't really dawn on me until much later. Well, honestly, I mean, it's to, to concentrate on Star Trek V, when I rewatch it, it's not that bad. It's... For me, I it's a roller coaster ride right up until they get to Shakari, and then it just grinds to a halt. Yeah. But before that, it's not a bad movie. I mean, there's a lot of action to it. Honestly, the scene with that always gets me. I, I so underrated on Shatner's part. The scene where Cybok is converted Spock and McCoy, and then he comes up to Kirk and he says, "Let me take away your pain," and Kirk looks at him and he says, "No." He says, "My pain is what makes me who I am." I want my pain. I need my pain. I think is so underrated. I think is one of his best acting moments. I think it's and it's it, and it's it, so it, true to life because point. we aren't who we are without the pain of our existence. And I was like, God, that is such a beautiful scene. And I mean, I mean, it's in the middle of Star Trek V, but I, I think it's at, at parts that's a very underrated movie. My you know, opinion. It's, it is a good point, and it is what makes all of us is our pain. But especially, it is what makes James T. Kirk who he is. The fact that he has so much emotional baggage, as it were. And I think my biggest problem with Star Trek V was really the fact that Star Trek IV was legitimately so funny that they tried to put comedy in Star Trek V, and it's Scotty, you know, hitting his head on the beam and falling over, and just the jokes about marshmallows and the little rocket boots and stuff. So Not a perfect film, I agree. So I was just like, man, 
just hire Bruce Valanche to write some jokes, you know? He yeah. did a great job on the Star Wars Holiday Special. He could have done a, a comedy <laughs> polish on Star Trek V. Look, I, I see your point. I should have done what I do now is I tend to not see, except for really big movies that I really like, I only see them in theater once because the next time I go to a movie theater, I want to see a different movie that I haven't seen yet because there's so many that I want to get to. And as you know, once you have kids, it might be a little bit harder to get out and go to the movie oh, theater. Yeah. So it's a lot of sometimes you go and see Snatched because your wife wants to see it. And I, to be <laughs> fair, I like Amy Schumer. I think she's very funny. I really liked Trainwreck. Uh, but Trainwreck would be a much more appropriate title for the movie Snatched. And I, I'm going to just assume you didn't see it. But I love no. Goldie Hawn so much that I can't believe that that was the piece of shit that she got out of semi-retirement <laughs> to do again. And I hope it doesn't turn her off from making movies because I would love to see more Goldie Hawn. How about Overboard 2? Aren't we ready for Overboard 2? I'd go see that in the theater three times. Kurt Russell would do it in a heartbeat, I bet. I bet. <laughs> but would he do it as Snake Plissken? Oh, Some kind of get... Overboard escape or Jack from Burton. Overboard. Or Jack Burton. Yeah, or well, Jack Burton. yeah that's true. Either one. <laughs> or either both. One. Halfway through the movie, he switches. <laughs> he switches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I look. I understand your point. I would see a lot of movies, especially in the summer. You know, basically mid middle school and into high school. I would go to a lot of movies with my friend Dan in particular. He was he's a past Black Cast guest. He was. Oh, that's a, weird because that's weird because the summer of '89. I had just graduated from high school. I probably went to see every one of those movies with my friend Dan. And every Friday, that was our ritual. We'd go to a movie. And that was the summer of 89, me and Dan seeing movies together. That's, maybe, that's weird. Maybe it's the same guy. Maybe maybe it's the same Dan, <laughs> and he just commuted. He was my friend who was really into horror movies, so that was why I saw Jason Takes Manhattan. And that you know what? Actually, Friday the 13th Part 7 was the first one I saw in the theater. And that one wasn't great, but it was certainly better than that. And Jason Taking Manhattan, where I believe he spends eight minutes in Manhattan at the end of the movie. And <laughs> yeah. that was the last Friday the 13th I saw in the theater, I think, until the reboot. So I, I saw the subsequent ones, but I, I wasn't in a rush to see them in the theater because that was one of those ones where I, I vividly remember just too many, too many people shouting during the movie and like they were way too into it and talking back to the screen and thinking that they were funny. Wow. And like <laughs> there's a point where a mirror breaks and a guy says, Seven years of bad luck, asshole. And I'm just like, what, did, did we spend money for, for that commentary? You know, this is this is not before Mystery Science Theater 3000, but I think it's before I knew about it, before I could appreciate riffing during movies. But I certainly wouldn't have appreciated something so uh, not clever as that. By the way, was that a show you were a fan of, Mystery Science Theater 3000? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, I, love, I, I, I know we've talked stuff. about we've talked about Time of the Apes, which of yes. course is a Planet of the Apes knockoff. And ha, did you watch the reboot of Mystery Science Theater three thousand, officially titled Mystery Science Theater three thousand: The Return? Not yet. I have not gotten to dive into those yet. There are some great movies that uh, they used, and the best thing about it is because it's Netflix. And it's HD. They actually have really good prints of these bad movies, uh, oh. which was not always the case on the old show. Uh, I didn't want a lot of things revealed about what the movies were before I saw it. But I, I'm going to tell you what one of them is, because as mm -hmm. you and I are speaking, I'm going to be getting ready to do for our friends at the Popcorn Talk Network what we call a watch along where 
my co-host from the Mystery Science Theater 3000 after show, Andrew Mena. He and I are going to watch one of the movies that was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 during the season because we've finished our after show and we thought we'd celebrate with one last watch along where we're going to riff the movie. And the movie is Roger Corman's Star Crash. Are you familiar with this movie? Oh, my God. I vi- yes, I remember. I remember when it came out as a, I was a little I mean, I was a kid and this was right after Star Wars. And I remember. Yeah. There were ads for Star Crash. I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be like Star Wars. Yes. This is like this is Star Crash. So this has got to be just as good as Star Wars. And dear Lord, it's got David Hasselhoff in it for people that aren't familiar with. The oh, film. my God. I think you're right. I and think you're right. for he's like in the third act. So you have to work up <laughs> to Hasselhoff. But the most amazing thing is that. I didn't realize it was a Roger Corman movie. I must not have been paying enough attention because usually when Roger Corman would make a movie for Mystery Science Theater 3000, they would always talk about how it was Roger Corman. But Mm -hmm. to do this watch along at the Popcorn Talk Network, which, you know, the archive of it it will still be available. People can choose to watch along with us. And the movie Star Crash in its entirety is actually also on YouTube. So you could actually do, you know, some kind of minimized windows and listen to us and watch us and watch the movie if they're so inclined. But to do this, I actually had to buy the DVD of the movie because that's just how the watch along works. And <laughs> it on the back of the jacket, you'll appreciate this. It says from the man who introduced us to Jack Nicholson, Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demi, <laughs> and Martin Scorsese shout factory. Of course, shout factory is proud mm-hmm. to present the new collector's edition of Roger Corman's most loved productions. And I don't know that this is one of the most loved productions. And by the way, this is a two-disc collector's edition of Star Crash, with the second disc being filled with special features. The booklet that comes with it is like 10 pages. It's crazy the amount of effort that went into this. And I don't know. I feel like this was made only because they knew that somebody was going to have to parody it or riff along with it or something. And... Anyway, that's what you're in store for when you watch the new season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. I loved the show when it was on, and Mm -hmm. when it got canceled, I was upset. And then when it came back on Sci-Fi Channel, I was just as excited because ultimately, what's that show about? Bad movies where people make jokes during it. I, Mm -hmm. I loved the hosts. I loved the voices of the robots. I loved the villains. All that stuff was great. But if... The part where they watch the movies wasn't funny. There'd be no reason to watch it. So you can do that show in perpetuity throughout the universe. And you can always Mm -hmm. replace the hosts or whatever. Not that I didn't love Joel Hodgson and Mike Nelson were both great. Jonah Ray, who is the host in the new season, does a fantastic job. So I strongly recommend it to you. Rafe, much as you have recommended various stories from uh, classic doctors, and I'm actually having trouble finding some of them, so that's uh, been a bit of a delay for us talking about that, but we'll do that in a future episode. We'll talk about some of those uh, classic episodes. Are you familiar with this new service called BritBox that's out that provides access to... Yes, yes I am. Supposedly, I guess they have a big back catalog. Um, Because I subscribe to, there's another service that's been around for a few years called Acorn TV, and so I've been a longtime subscriber of that, and now BritBox is out, which is pretty much the same 
same thing, a bunch of British different shows. Sounds like they got the rights to other things, but uh, yeah, haven't got know, to like, it yet, but like I want to try Brit it. Box has, you know, things that you'd expect, like Absolutely Fabulous and Blackadder, well, which I love. Faulty Towers. Yeah, and... of course. You, of course, wouldn't need a streaming service for Doctor Who because, I, unless I'm mistaken, you have all the episodes on DVD. Every, sing- every single episode that ever came to DVD or Blu-ray, I own and, the entire collection. And you have the audio-only versions of those that are only available that way? Yep. Well, I'm just going to have to drive to your house and borrow a bunch of them. That'll just be the easiest way to do that. And we'll talk about that in the future. But before we wind things down here on the Blackcast, I wanted to talk about something very sad that happened since the mm. last installment of the Blackcast, and that was the passing of Adam West. And, you know, we were talking about Batman a little bit earlier, and I completely understand why people kind of look down on that 66 Batman. But as a kid, that was probably my favorite show. I used to come home from preschool, and at Channel 11 in New York, there was an hour block. It was Get Smart and Batman. And those were two of my favorite shows. But, you know, really, as much as I like Get Smart, it was really like, oh, but when's Batman going to be on? And I had a little black and white TV in my room, and I would watch those every day. Sometimes I'd be lucky enough to get to watch them in color in the living room. But usually I was (laughs) – I'm using air quotes, as I so often do on the broadcast. I was napping, but I was in there to nap, and I would watch Get Smart and Batman. I loved that show so much, and it it was just fun. And, you know, the sound effects, the pow, bam. Once one of the sound effects was Blatt, B-L-A-T-T, and I was very excited. <laughs> so that was that was the first Blatt cast, courtesy of Adam West. And, you know, yes, it was very tongue-in-cheek, and it was a little hokey, but it was fun, and there are good takeaways from it. You know, from all the corny little lessons that he gave to Robin, like, Batman, we're in a rush. We don't have to put money in the meter. And he says, hold on, old chum. There's always time. And that's what pays for the roads. And we all drive on the roads. You know, stuff like that that's really kind of goofy. But you're like, stuff that definitely sinks in when you're watching it as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people had to understand, that it, it predominantly was a kid's show. And it had some amazing guest stars. And the original Batman, no, it doesn't compare to the Tim Burton movies the Christopher Nolan movies, anything that we've seen Batman do you know, pretty much since. But there's a very soft spot in my heart for that Batman. And I feel like a lot of comic book fans, a lot of comic book movie fans feel the same way. Yeah, I mean, for me, pretty much the same way. I, when I was real young, I grew up on uh, Super Friends every yeah. Saturday morning. And uh, if you remember when Filmation, they did their Batman with Batman, Robin, and Batmite. I watched that every week. And that was and when Casey Kasem was Robin, right? That's that. No, that was no, no. Casey Kasem was Robin on Super Friends, but the stand, the Batman filmation one was Adam West and Burt Ward. Oh, of course, I forgot that there was that one. Yeah, I, I yeah. haven't seen as much of that. I don't know. I think that's the very slight age difference between us. That one wasn't on as much when I was a kid, but I, I have seen it. I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. And of course to get Adam West and Burt Ward, that had to be great. Yeah. So when I was, a, I, when I was real young, those were what I, what I watched and we didn't have cable. So I didn't see Adam West till I was a little, I I was almost 10 years old. And then my mom told me that, Oh yeah, the, you, you know, there was a live action Batman series. I'm like, what a live act like with real people and eventually came on TV. And I sat down and as a little kid, your eyes are just like, oh, my God, these characters have come to life. And I remember we had a summer uh, movie series for like a buck. You could go see an old movie at the theater and they played the Batman, the movie, 
where all the villains team up. And I remember getting to see that on the big screen for the first time and just fell in love. I mean, because you don't as a kid, you don't see the humor in it. You're like, these are serious, real heroes on the big screen on my TV. And they're fighting. And I, I you know, as a kid, I didn't recognize who, you know, Victor Buono was <laughs> or, you, you know, didn't know who Burgess uh, Meredith was or Eartha Kitt. Probably no. To me, they were they were. I didn't even you know. I probably had seen Rocky, but didn't put two and two together. Yeah. So I, you know, to me they were Joker, Penguin, Catwoman, and the Riddler, and they they were straight from the comics. And I loved that show so much. I mean, when that when that when that show came out on Blu-ray a couple years ago, I I had to have it because I had to go back and watch those those episodes because what did they get, do to uh, were they high quality transfers to be on oh, Blu-ray, I assume? gorge oh my gosh they're absolutely beautiful on high definition the dvd the colors just pop and it just looks amazing and on blu-ray it is so worth owning and there's extras on it interviews it's an amazing blu-ray set if you can if, if you want to Swing yeah, it well, I'm at it. the point where I'm starting to figure out the game plan for what superhero content will be appropriate for my son Felix to consume when he's old enough. And I feel like Spider-Man and his amazing friends that I used to oh, watch yeah. in the 80s, that's very kid-friendly, the super friends, of course. And I think that there are definitely scary moments in Batman 66, but... But I don't know. I feel like it's not it, – I was never actually that worried about it. I was never scared. I kind of always knew that Batman and Robin would always pull through and eventually Batgirl too. Which, by the way, I, I was so young that I didn't understand the appeal of Batgirl. So the episodes that had Batgirl in it, I'm like, no, it's supposed to be Batman and Robin. <laughs> so. when, you see, when you see a giant clam eating Robin, you're – Kind of safe thinking, all right, he'll be back next week. I'm pretty sure he's going to be okay. Yeah. So I I have a huge affinity for that show. And, of course, the personality that was Adam West in the decades since, the more than 50 years since that show premiered. And I loved him on Family Guy as the mayor, who, of course, is also Mm -hmm. named Adam West. And he just had the most random, sometimes depraved one-liners. And it was so perfect. And I just was glad to still have Adam West in my life. And I was at Stanley's Kamikaze, although I think it's called L.A. Comic-Con now. I was there last fall uh, filming something for the one of the shows I work on, The Tomorrow Show. And we saw Adam West from afar, from a very far. You were not allowed to get close to him unless you had bought a ticket for that line. And I think it was $100 to get stuff signed. And so you weren't allowed to take pictures. You weren't allowed to get close. Ugh. But I did see him from far away. And I was very excited. I was more excited than any of the people that I actually interacted with. Like, I got to talk to Sam Jones. I got to talk to Flash Gordon himself. And I was still more excited about seeing Adam West way off in the distance. Well, you know? what's funny is one of my most prized possessions, I have I have a VHS of Batman the movie. It came, When it first came out on VHS, because until the rights got cleared up, that was the only thing that you could buy. And I had just moved to Columbus, Ohio, so I was probably 17 years old. I was working an after-school job, and this would have been about 88, probably. And my mom told me, she says, "I'm going." There's a grocery store opening up here in Columbus, and Bat and Burt Ward and Adam West are going to be there signing autographs. You could just go up and meet them. And so I gave her my VHS, and she went and I, I signed, you know, Adam West, Burt Ward. She walked right up. You know, they were they were opening a 
grocery store for crying out loud. So this is pre Tim Burton movie. Yeah. And signed my VHS. She got a picture with them and signed a couple of things and no weight whatsoever. They were just sitting behind a card table. And now, of course, you know, up until a couple of years ago. Yeah, they were charging 100 bucks a pop for an autograph. Yeah, because that's how fond people were of, one, Adam West, the person, but also that Batman, where people were willing. You know, you know people will spend $100 for the Shatner line, for the Stan Lee line, oh, yeah. for the Adam West line. I have never paid for an autograph from anyone. I have gotten a lot of things signed, but it was in the old days before that was an add-on, you know. Mm-hmm. I have I walked up to Chris Claremont with a huge stack of X-Men comics to get signed. And as a young, I was probably 13, maybe a little older than that. I was smart enough to know that if I brought his book to get signed, he'd sign more than, you know, cause there's like limits. You're supposed to get five things signed. Mm-hmm. And because I had his book and I was just like, Oh, I don't know how many of these you can sign. He was, and he just kept signing away. And I was like, yep, that's the way to do it. So I would get a lot of comic book artists sign and I have definitely gotten some people, but I've never gone to one of the big star Trek conventions where I think a lot of those are add-ons, aren't they? Yeah, I've, I've gone to a couple conventions and unfortunately had to pay for a few autographs. And, you know, some of them have been awesome. Some people are it's just like a cattle call. They just yeah. sign, go, sign, go, sign, go. And it's like, well, you know, it there, is what it is. There are definitely people that I would be probably willing to sign, but I'd have to also get the picture. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. sometimes it's like you can get an autograph or a picture or sometimes it's no pictures. So I, I, I feel like I would need that little memento. And I don't, I'm not quite sure who it is because I have enough Stein stuff from people. But here's the thing. I don't have that VHS you do of Adam West and Burt Ward. So that's that's kind of a great keepsake to have. And, you know, many, many decades from now, when you go, Quinn and Brody will have to fight over which one of them gets to keep it. Maybe they can yeah. have shared custody, you know. They pretty much told me once I'm gone, they're selling all my crap online. So, <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> Although, one of my best memories, I went to a convention and I was going to meet uh, Sherilyn Fenn from Twin Peaks. Yes. And I was first in line, crowded, crowded hall. And I'm standing in line with my son, oldest son Brody, who's never even seen Twin Peaks. He, lo- I look over, Sherilyn Fenn walks in the room. She's not with anybody. She's looking to where to go. Um, I, I, my eyes meet and I just walk to her and I hold out my arm. I said, Miss Ben, let me escort you to your table. She takes my arm. I walk her to the table. My son is looking at me like, who the hell are you? What are you? Why are you drooling over this 50 year old woman? Well, I would say that your son does not have the same experience I do, which is the first and one of the only issues of Playboy that I ever owned was the one with Sherilyn Fenn on the cover. Oh, guess what I had in my hand getting autographed that, that I paid Playboy. 20 bucks for? <laughs> <laughs> that Playboy issue. I definitely don't have it anymore, but uh, it, it, it was in good condition because I, of course, would keep <laughs> my Playboys like my comic books. I would keep them with bags and boards and all that. Somehow we got to that part of the conversation, but <laughs> what we're trying to say is rest in peace, Adam West. Yeah, and somehow we got to that. So, but yeah, again, if you, oh, and if you get a chance, I don't know if you've seen it. The Adam West animated movie they did last year, The Return of the Cape Crusaders. Yeah. Oh, it's so I, good. I and really wanted to see that. We had Burt Ward on the Tomorrow Show. He, he oh. was alluding to it, and they hadn't announced it yet, so he couldn't really tell us. And then sort of the cameras went off, and he explained a little bit more. And I've actually, I'd actually forgotten about it, and then I heard that Adam West passed, and I'm like, oh, yeah. That, so you thought that that movie was well done? 
Oh, it was so well done. And I was very pleased to find out because they, they had he had already recorded this. Se- They're doing a second one. Oh, OK. The, se- yeah. the second one comes out, I think, this fall. He'd already recorded it. Uh, it's called Batman versus Two-Face. Two-Face, the one villain who did, never appeared on the show. Oh, They're yeah. doing an animated movie, Batman 66 style. And, of course, they got to get a big celebrity to play Two-Face. It's going to be William Shatner. Of course it is. The, <laughs> the most two-faced man in Hollywood. No, I love the Shat sometimes. So anyway, the Bat versus the Shat. This the bat, bat versus Shat. Somebody's going to probably have to use that as a marketing campaign. Anyway, Mark, we talked about so many great things in the course of this. I was going to say hour, but it's well more than an hour at this point. But I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm glad that uh, we got to talk a little bit about some of our fondness for Adam West. People can find you at Mark Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E, Hunt. Is that correct? Correct. On and Twitter. As we said earlier, podcastoftheapes.podbean.com or just Google Podcast of the Apes. And we'll talk to you, as we said earlier, we'll talk to you a little bit later in the summer about the new Apes movie. For now, don't forget to follow at Blackcast, like The Blackcast on Facebook. And of course, Blackcast.com will be back with Agent Starling and Captain EO and Coltrane will be back. As always, you can count on us to be back same Blat time. Same Blatt Channel. be brainwashed by this con man i was wrong this con man took away my pain damn it bones you're a doctor you know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with the wave of a magic wand they're the things we carry with us the things that make us who we are if we lose them we lose ourselves i don't want my pain taken away i need my pain no more catholics no more